This evening's talk is about wise concentration. And beginning uh, uh, this evening with uh, a discussion uh, regarding three Pali words, sila, samadhi, and panya. Pali words that translate into English as sila, virtue or ethical conduct or ethical behavior, samadhi, concentration, and panya, wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom, or insight, form the three branches of mental development that are essential to all forms and all schools of Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through, uh, comes about through the direct uh, meditative experience of the three liberating insights. And those three liberating insights being anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, dukkha, the essential unsatisfactoriness of all worldly mental and physical occurrences, and anatta, the impersonality of all of the material and mental phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one onto the final liberating insight, the final liberating wisdom. We've already explored some of this and we'll be exploring some more uh, specifically of these uh, as the retreat moves along. And as I think pretty much all of you know, concentration plays an important role in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment and those being mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties, or what are in their more mature uh, uh, state called the five spiritual powers, and those are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana, insight practice, 
without the support of samatha, without the support of concentration. He said it's like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without the protection of a bodyguard. In the Buddha's words, as he often did, he starts with a question. And then he goes on to answer it himself. So here's one, here is one of those dialogues that he offers his own dialogue with himself as an outward teaching to others. If concentration, samatha, is developed, what profit does it bring? The mind is developed. If the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All greed is abandoned. If insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. If wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. And so concentration, samatha or samadhi in Pali, meditation and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, through our exploration of virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue deepen and as they mature within us, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, ease on deeper and more and more profound levels, and what brings suffering, confusion, what brings dis-ease, or disease as we could call it. Ethical behavior, discipline, is really the basis for the development of samatha, the development of concentration. The Sanskrit term samadhi, or samatha in Pali, as I've mentioned, refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and balance. Intimately connected to the understanding that the practices of sila, ethical discipline and ethical behavior, affords us is the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our long-standing habits of attraction, which show up as greed, clinging, expectation, attachment, and our long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry, resistance, anger, fear, confusion, doubt. These habits of mind are the primary mental 
and physical phenomena that create suffering and lead to what is called rebirth. Over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of worldly life. Samsara, as it's called in Pali. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration, or samadhi. I alternate back and forth between the Pali and the Sanskrit with these definitions of concentration. And these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, consequently keeping us from awakening, keeping us from liberation of the heart and mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, New Mexico, California, Afghanistan, dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, (laughs) Um, on and on, Canada, New York, uh, feelings, one's hair, one's aging body, sunshine, the White House, your favorite restaurant, Delta Airlines, etc., 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 are understood and regarded as being without substantial, sustaining essence. Meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness, part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, all of which are rooted in mindfulness. The Buddha, in speaking with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, in the Kimata Sutta from the Anguttara Nikaya, Ananda asks the Buddha a question and the Buddha responds. Ananda says to the Buddha, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has Concentration as its purpose. Concentration 
as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of liberation from suffering, to the consummation of arhantship. And in speaking with his monks and nuns uh, directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this, It is owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our most difficult experiences, sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes, as well as learning, for sure, also from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that Purification of the mind and heart is synonymous with these acts of learning. So this evening, uh, taking a look at the active force of samadhi, or samatha, concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potential powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reigning in the mind from its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the very simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind really lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. One important aspect of this Development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes, we could say, waft in upon it from any of the sense doors or from its own unconscious. So, in light of this, we could ask ourselves a question. Does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? That's actually quite a big question. (laughs) So for instance, if your attention is to keep keep your 
if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things that practice offers us is that remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill. It's a skill that can be learned. Like any other skill by practice, patient repetition and gradual development. The Vasudhimaga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses quite a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in creating pottery on a potter's wheel is this. And this is from the Vasudhimaga, a little bit uh, worded just a little bit differently from, from my own experience. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and very relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focus of clear, connected, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down on the clay, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it, by it, by the clay, by the process. And a bowl forms. So, really quite a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and process of concentration. With the mind, with the heart, learning to move in a focused experience of deepening, developing concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind. This brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. It re-stimulates the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment of the continuing process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself 
to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm. Quite an energizing and refreshing and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to uh, explore and to learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And a quote from the Tibetan Buddhist teacher Alan Wallace, B. Alan Wallace. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. None of this can grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is really essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils, at the anapana spot, or maybe the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, and you're anxious, there's a lot of worry going on, or you're filled with expectation during the process. Calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us if we're not mindful in the process of their arising and their occurring. With the practice of concentration, (coughs) one needs to be willing to let go of thought, meaning to not be seduced by thoughts. One needs to be willing, and that's a, a big learning, to not be willing. One needs to be willing, or to be willing to cut through thought, so to say. Even thoughts that really might be seemed, seem to be so important in that particular moment. And it's important, really important to note here that it's not about kicking out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. And that's not what this is about. What's meant here is rooted actually in the clarity of intention. 
and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. And this is really the first and maybe the most important and for many people the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. I think as we all know, the mind can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is, is absolutely what's important right now. I uh, had such an experience during a three-month retreat that I was, uh, that was devoted to the development of concentration in jhana that I sat with the Venerable Pawak Sayadaw quite a number of years ago. For the first week or so of, <clears throat> of that retreat, each day after lunch I would make myself a, a kind of fancy cup of tea. I'd take two or three different loose teas and mix them together in a tea ball to make my fancy cup of tea. And it uh, seemed like a very important and very necessary treat that I needed, that I certainly wanted, and that I convinced myself I also needed. Towards the end of that week, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter that actually was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. It had been sitting there all along, but uh, the mind hadn't connected uh, with it with any clear awareness at all up until that moment. So when I noticed it, the thought came, do I really need this? Is this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, the answer came pretty quick. No, it's not at all important. It's merely a habitual distraction. So from that day on, I I just made myself a simple cup of tea with a tea bag and drank it with enjoyment, with pleasure. It was good enough. What happened after this was what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the three-month retreat, the rest of it pretty much still lingering, the whole three-month retreat, the question, is this really important, would come up in relationship to various mundane mental actions, mundane actions, and <coughs> mental states, uh, thoughts, uh, various thought patterns. Is this really important? And it would come up quite spontaneously. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, as time went on, no. And I would just then simply let go of whatever it was at that point. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't happen immediately. It took a while for all that to gel. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome 
states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and aversion and lethargy, restlessness and doubt, the experiences that are classically called hindrances in the teachings from the Buddha. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people at some point, jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances, all of these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm and joy and tranquility and blissful happiness, contentment, peace and equanimity, the fruits of concentration, when they clearly manifest, unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated, as well as considerably weakened over the long term particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now at how the uh, different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder the blossoming of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the attention, initially applying the mind, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object, The word for this in Pali is vitaka. And then eventually establishing the mind on the object, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the nostrils or the anapanaspa, the touching point as it's sometimes called, or the rising and falling of the movement of the breath in the belly. This eventually, temporarily eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness.
the sustained application of the mind, meaning a continuous sustained attention on the object, such as the breath. The Pali word for this is vichara. This eventually, temporarily, eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice and weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest or a bright happiness, an elation in the mind, resulting from the developing focus and purity of the mind and heart. And the word for this is piti in Pali. This brings a a delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. And with the development of a deepening concentration, which results in varying degrees of PT, often uh, with physical uh, sensations uh, uh, involved with it, especially at the beginning of the development of PT, this will eventually uh, temporarily inhibit ill will. With the first and second jhana, in a very deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's a great deal of delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of the jhana. At that point, one is not directly paying attention to the breath, but the actual jhana experience itself. And at this point, all forms of ill will are completely temporarily inhibited. As we continue with this process of the development of the mind through the practice and the development of concentration, the concentrated state of bliss or contentment or a kind of sweet, easeful happiness, and the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity, actually, is not a pleasant bodily feeling. As it's developing, there's a bodily feeling involved. But in its maturity, it's not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful, contented mental experience. And when this occurs to varying degrees through deepening concentration, and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness and agitation and regret and worry are eventually completely, temporarily eliminated. And last, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, ikagata in Pali, Pali word, with this occurring to varying degrees during the developmental stages of concentration and mindfulness, and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during the absorption in the fourth jhana, this one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, 
strong and pervasive energetic centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, sensuous desire for anything is temporarily inhibited, is temporarily at bay. As samadhi concentration develops and as it moves along, the states that corrupt the natural purity and luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also include clinging and self-identification to a pleasant experience um, and other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of this has been Uh, very clearly let go of, has been temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished. At that time, we really truly know and gain a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection with our own practice. When this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience a kind of great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Buddha's teachings, the Dhamma, and to the Sangha, the community, and to one's own particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. With the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest, and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. And with this joy and the knowing of it, and very important, the next part, without any attachment and without any personal identification in those moments, the body and mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances, we could call them, that are connected with gladness and with joy, are removed. They disappear in the calm and in the quiet. They disappear with the very serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. When pleasure is felt, and again, very important, without any attachment, without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind 
is a purified mind, which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the, the, the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And so on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect the influence of raga. Raga being the Pali word that's literally translated as unwholesome passion and is often used synonymously with greed and with unwholesome desire, craving, attachment, or clinging, (coughs) which is really the core cause of dukkha, the core cause of our human suffering. Totally out of control when this happens. (coughs) It'll take just a minute for it to subside. During the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this subject of the development of the mind, or this, excuse me, this aspect of the development of the mind, was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked. The analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen and will be aware of a provocative sense input but will allow these to just simply roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar image that was often used was that of water rolling off a lotus leaf or off the feathers of a duck. The nature 
of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types or three levels of concentration that can develop and that also serve our insight practice. First of these is called kanaka samadhi, the Pali word, kanaka samadhi in English, momentary concentration. And this is the development and the growing maturation of our ability to focus on one object after another object after another object, one after the other. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one one object and on and on and on, one by one, ongoing, moment by moment by moment. The cultivation of among our capacity for momentary uh, concentration is essential for insight practice. It's essential for vipassana practice. The second type or the second level as it's sometimes spoken about of concentration is called upachara samadhi or access concentration or it's sometimes called neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption, just before one moves into jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and the depth of absorption, uh, of absorption or jhana concentration, but it's not an absorbed concentration. Neighborhood concentration is not an absorbed concentration, meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With upachara or neighborhood concentration, The mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object. Even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can really be very helpful and quite useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third uh, type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible at that point for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas, which at the same time, uh, while at the same time, uh, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened, actually, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It is only through vipassana, 
only through insight practice that unwholesome or afflictive states of mind are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana practice, our insight practice. Particularly kanaka samadhi, particularly momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to be able to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, less attachment, and less and less identification, self-identification but rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative relationship, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that is not everyone's inclination or interest. And it's not at all absolutely necessary for a potential liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration, it may require many, many months or may even many, many years of single-pointed practice, meditating for many, many hours every day. And this might be impractical for some people. For others, it may be possible and it may be worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. But please remember, as I said, concentration is worthwhile and constantly developing throughout your practice very important and necessary. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and we gain the confidence to allow ourselves to really wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, but with no pondering, with no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and, important, not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. So in light of this, I'd like to um, share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme, austere practices and finding that, in fact, they really weren't Uh, bringing the liberation of heart and mind uh, that he was seeking, it said that the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? And in reflection with this inner questioning, 
the image or the image, probably an image and a memory of a particular experience uh, from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the all the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, <clears throat> an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture, comfortably and quietly sitting under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Observing the scene that was unfolding before him in a very open, alert, and unfettered way. Uh, The kind of attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. And in those moments of not wanting and not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hoofs and he heard the cowbells rolling on and on amidst the very sharp, strong shouts of the men as they worked. He also very clearly heard the beautiful sound of bird song, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects, the grubs, the worms, and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and struggling and suffering and dying endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing this scene that was unfolding before him, and in his mind and in his heart finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. And as he sat quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice and without attachment, and finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration. It's said to have been the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing experiencing a bright sweet pleasure and 
a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind and heart, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities, extreme austerities of the body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to this young man, Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and assurance that this, in fact, was a footstep on the path, a footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved then to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for freedom, enlightenment. This was really a turning point and a a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified or banished or released or relinquished by creating hardship for oneself and then putting up with them or by trying to live through them by stealing, by hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by struggling trying hard, really hard, to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme, austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, How many times in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to, for instance, engage in mental fantasies, various situations, various activities, various spiritual practices and various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life. 
and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. And so in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that these situations, these fantasies, these activities, these practices, these relationships would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can never really be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experiences, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities. That this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances, of lethargy, restlessness, greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated and mindful presence and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and really necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that in fact it points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That in fact it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva Siddhartha came to understand that the development of concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. As the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima Nikaya, in his discourse to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point, he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme, austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and and he regained his strength. And then he went and he sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures, and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first 
second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the words of the Buddha, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. With my concentrated mind, when my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning uh, attained to equanimity, he tells Sakaka that he then systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of a concentrated, undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world's outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away or run from. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander in for most of us. We often have a mind made up, and often absolutely made up, about how it's supposed to be or isn't supposed to be, what's good or what's bad, what we definitely know is true and what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment we're in, keeping us in conflict, keeping us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart, prevents the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal experience and external experience. And as I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical or virtuous conduct, the current of samatha, samadhi, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and practice of wisdom. 
these three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, possibly maybe including states of a deeply absorbed concentration jhana, possibly not, but the development of concentration is a beautiful, healing, and powerful experience in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we really recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. Our practice is about the unification of samatha and vipassana. And as the Tibetan Buddhist teacher B. Allen Wallace says, the transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and the vividness of samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. And so as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years after the story from the Buddha's early life that I've shared with you took place. And thanks to Siddhartha's, Siddhartha Gautama's very diligent and powerful years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspired and amazing uh, gift of his clarity and his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with a deep kindness and boundless patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will, without a doubt, serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya, and, without a doubt, are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice 
stem from? We're not done yet, quite, but thank you. (laughs) So I'd like to close the talk uh, with uh, a Mary Oliver poem that speaks to this uh, evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way. And in relationship to our topic this evening, in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. And this poem is called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers, all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree, and I began to understand what the bird was saying. And the sands and the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.